Hello, and welcome to the podcast with Suzanne and Amy, brought to you by Homeschool Life Magazine. I'm Suzanne. I'm Amy. And this is episode two for June 20th, 2016. And the first thing we want to do is thank our listeners. We have listeners. I know, actual human beings listening to our podcast. I'm not sure whether to be delighted or terrified. (laughs) Thank you guys so much. We're so excited you're finding us. Um, Please keep the comments and email coming. We love it. It makes our day. And we will keep the podcast coming. Yay. Everybody's happy. Um, Well, I guess then on on to the podcast. Amy, I don't know if you've noticed, but I think it is officially summer. Um, Yes, I believe it is. (laughs) (laughs) We've had two weeks of 90 degrees and it may not go back under till, you know, September because it's hot. It's Atlanta. That's right. So we thought our homeschool topic for today to to be very current is summer homeschooling and what that looks like in our households. Yes. And we're almost exactly opposites in that way, aren't we, Suzanne? Because what do you guys do for summer? We do not summer homeschool. So there you go. End of podcast. (laughs) Come back in two weeks. We'll be here. No, no, Um, no. but, But since we do summer homeschool, I am always really interested in how people take a break. So what what do you guys do? Well, well, so we were, we did try to homeschool year round. You know, when I first started homeschooling, I was so excited about my ability to remake the entire educational system of our culture from the ground up. And um, one of the things I was excited about was being able to set our own school year because the, the current one's kind of kind of silly, and in my opinion, um, and uh, so so we were gonna homeschool year round, and we did for a few years, and it went it went okay. Um, but what I found is as the kids got older and were involved in more things, you know, everything revolves around the school year. You know, our church schedule. We go to a Unitarian Universalist church. It it. It's completely different during the school year, the parks and rec um, type of activities, library stuff going on. Uh, our city has puppet shows in the summer, daytime. So anyway, there's all this great stuff going on in the summer. And our schedule was already changing to accommodate that. And we just we just couldn't buck the trend. So between there was so there's really three reasons first you know like i said everything we just couldn't buck the fact that everybody changes their schedule during the summer and then also most of the kids friends uh were traditionally schooled and once the kids got old enough to realize that they got the summer off (laughs) they were like wait a minute Well, this is not working for us. So, and also they had more free time. So they wanted the, their friends had more free time and the kids of course wanted to hang out with them. And, you know, uh, it was really important to us to support those friendships and make sure they had time during the summer. Um, and then really the, uh, the other, and perhaps the, the most important thing is I desperately need a break by the time May rolls around. I want a break from being the person who is telling the kids what to do all the time. Yeah. And from being, uh, I mean, one thing I didn't anticipate about homeschool was um, the fact that, you know, the kids are going to wake up some mornings or most mornings or all the mornings, depending on which kid it is. 
uh, kind of like, I don't want to do this. I don't want it. So it's kind of my job to be the, okay, guys, I'm so excited. Let's go down and do math. You know, uh, yay, this is great. I don't want to do math in right. the morning. I mean, I'm not crazy. So um, I need to like the homeschool pep squad. Exactly. And that is not my natural personality, as, as you well know. <laughs> so I need a break from that. Um, and then the summer gives me a time to kind of reorganize the curriculum and the homeschool room, at least in theory. Sometimes it just stays there and gets dusty, but that's always the idea. And to plan next year and to get excited again about uh, homeschooling. So, so right now we do. We follow the school calendar. Actually, we follow it exactly since we have kids in actual school, siblings in actual school. So we start the day they start. And we're off the day they're off. And we get all school holidays off plus extra. Um, uh, so that that that's kind of what's working for us. And then so what we do during the summer then is we take care of we we take advantage of all those great um, activities that are going on in the community. You know, the library summer programs, um, summer reading and the, the read aloud stuff, the puppet shows uh, also we do each kid um, has in the past done at least one week of day camp through the parks and rec. So they've done arts and crafts or sports or performing arts. And, and that's a really great way for them to try something out and see if they like it without making a commitment for yeah. six months or whatever. Um, and then we have, you know, sleepaway camps. There's a Unitarian Universalist uh, sleepaway camp that they go up to up in North Carolina that they really like. Um, for like a week. Uh, and of course, this summer, the big thing that's happening is uh, Duke Tip. My two daughters, my 15 and 13 year old, are both away for three weeks uh, doing the, the Duke uh, Tip program. That's a talent identification program. It's an academic summer camp. So they're spending their summer taking classes and having a really great time. And sometime when we have a topic, I'll talk more about that um, when we talk about transitioning homeschool to high school, because for us, that has been a really big help. That's been something that's made a big difference along the way. So that's what we do. What, what do you what do you do? Crazy summer. homeschool? <laughs> well, I'm sort of I guess I'm the opposite of you because I didn't actually plan to be a year round homeschooler. <laughs> don't don't laugh at me. But that first year homeschooling, I I couldn't actually figure out where to stop or, or how right. to stop. Right. So I just <laughs> the breaks. didn't. And then it was September. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so it wasn't, um, uh, you know, I, I think there are a lot of philosophical arguments for homeschooling year round and for taking yeah. the summer off, but I had none of those. I just had no idea how to stop what I was doing. Um, but it actually turns out that homeschooling through the summer makes sense for us, um, partly because I work. So I'm always trying to balance my job with homeschooling. And so having a routine is really helpful for that. You know, if we kind of follow the same pattern every day, then the kids know what to expect and I know what to expect. And we both right. kind of know where we have pockets of free time, which is nice. Um, but I think it also works because we are super relaxed homeschoolers. I, I mean, all the time, um, you know, my, my joke is always that we're like um, the homeschool equivalent of the dude and the big Lebowski. 
Um, so, and we're even more relaxed in the summer. I mean, we do school at the pool. We do school at the park. We do a lot of school on the back porch. So, so what does that look like for you? Like if you're doing school at the pool, is that, are you reading? Are you talking? Do you have paper and pencil? What does that right. look like? So we're very read aloud oriented. I mm-hmm. mean, our, our homeschool, I like your homeschool is, is really based pretty heavily around literature. So I will often sit on the edge of the pool and read whatever we're reading, our stories or our history or our science out loud while the kids are swimming around. Then about by the time we finish a chapter or two, they're ready to like take a break from the pool. So they'll go sit at one of the tables and, you know, take some notes in their little history notebook. All in, you know, obviously my son doesn't like to write or agree to write anything because that would just be too nice for him to do. (laughs) Make your life easy. (laughs) My daughter keeps her notebook and um and so it's just it's very casual. It's very easy. Um if they do some math, they might do it sitting at the pool. They might um we might do problems while they're playing on a raft. Uh Uh-huh. I mean it's it is very casual. It's very easy. Do you try to do for a certain number of, of hours per day or you're trying to get a, like a, like a list of, okay, let's touch this topic and this topic and this topic today? I like to do our nature journals, a little math, and a little history every day. Okay. Um, and our read aloud, obviously, whatever book we're reading for fun. Um, so that's what I like to do. So usually we do a little bit more, but that's like the bare minimum of what I feel like. If we did that, then we're fine. And my children are not going to be completely uneducated people right. who will not be able to get a job or go to college or, you know. Right. So that's like kind of the summer list of subjects. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we usually add one fun thing for the summer that, that they want to do some random. This year, I think I said before, they're taking a crochet class online. That, right. That's their little random thing that they're doing this summer. Um, but like you say, a lot of our activities power down for the summer, you know, the homeschool classes that we take and the groups that we're part of. So that also slows our schedule down a lot. Um, well, so, so, so do you feel like you can just slip back? So do you have any, how do you get ramped back up for fall then? So I do take time during the summer. We officially start our new school year. So people start their new grades, which is a big deal, of course. Uh It is. Um, Yep. Right after Labor Day, the first, I guess, day that we are back to school after Labor Day. Right, because that's when normal people start school, Fulton County school system, looking at you. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Right, well, some places started crazy early now, and some of our, our, I think our homeschool group starts in, like, mid-August, but I I, I feel like that's September's, that's what I put on my homeschool declaration of intent. Uh Uh-huh. So I, we run from September 1st to August 31st every year. Actually, we do too. I've always put I've always put year round on the the DOI, even though we don't actually. Although we define what homeschool is, so I, hey. That's what I was gonna say. I I think all homeschoolers homeschool year round, whether they I are mean, in classes. In the video game that they're playing now, they're like over in Scotland and then doing stuff in Asia. So that's totally geography right there. Legitimate geography. (laughs) geography. I I feel like geography is one of those subjects where if you don't care about why you're learning it, it's really hard to make all those countries (laughs) stick. Maybe that's just me. No, 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 no. So yeah. Um, But I, but I do, I, I sit down with each of the kids during the summer at some point and we talk about 
you know, kind of what we did last year, what they liked, what they didn't, what they want to do the next year, what they probably should cover the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just kind of talk through it. Um, but one, one thing that I think is interesting about schooling year round is that it really took a lot of the, I have this feeling that you have to finish things. You know what I mean? It's, oh, right. Right. And so I would always feel this enormous pressure to be done with a certain subject by a certain time, you know, mm-hmm. so by schooling year round, if we don't finish history or, or math or whatever, by the end of May, then we just keep doing it until we finish. Right. So it works out that we're kind of finishing things and starting new things on a rolling basis. I look at all those homeschoolers on Instagram with their pictures of their stacks of shiny new curriculum for fall. (laughs) And it doesn't, I don't get those pictures because that's not how we do it. Well, Um, I don't, I don't get that either because we don't, we just go, um, we, we rarely, it rarely matches up. Right. I mean, if we're, if it's the last day of school and we are on lesson 97 of 150 in the book, we just shut the book and put it away. Um, so yeah, so we don't really get the, the stacks of, of new curriculum either. Uh, that makes me feel better because I'm always a little jealous. I mean, they're, they're very exciting pictures. And we usually only have one or two new things for fall. I think for this right. fall, the only thing that I have to buy is a Japanese book for my daughter because she's decided, Suzanne, she doesn't want to take Latin anymore. She's done. After, after taking Latin since third grade, she's like, I'm done. I want to take Japanese. Japanese is super cool, though. I actually have, I took it in college. I actually have some of my old stuff. So I, I should be getting a lot of phone calls. <laughs> I should be. Oh, I don't remember any of it. I can listen to a movie and tell if they're actually speaking Japanese or not. But that's, that's, cool. that's not it. So anyway, um, yeah, I can show you. I can show you some of my stuff. Um, yeah, so we don't, yeah, we just stop. So how do you start back up? Because, I mean, to me, we ramp up a little bit. Our classes start again. Our activities right. start back up. We well, I think that's the grade, but it's not a big change. I think that's the key is the is the ramping up part. And I actually really feel like I try to tell new homeschoolers this, too, that, um, you know, maybe they've pulled their kid out of school and they're feeling anxious about, ah, they've missed school days, which I I understand. And they feel like, you know, okay, we've got to get all the subjects and we've got to start on Monday. Um, And for us, at least that has never worked. So we do ramp up. We we usually, uh, not so much these days now that the kids are older, but especially when they were younger, we would pick a start date for school. And and it helps that all of their friends and everyone they know and on the news and in the, the stores, everything is back to school. Right. So everything is kind of setting us up for that. And and then we would maybe do a special, some kind of special thing to mark the first day. Uh, for a while, I get them. We don't have shiny new curriculum, but maybe I get them like a new notebook or something. Oh, we go pick out shiny new binders. They are one of the great joys of school. Exactly. We have stickers so you could decorate them. Um, they were not as excited about that as I was. So we started doing cakes. Like everybody would make their own cake, um, very small cake. And they would decorate that and they would eat that for the, fr- and that was not to me as, as quite as exciting as <laughs> binders with the stickers, but they liked the cake better for some reason. Uh, but the, the main thing that we do is like you're talking about is that we start slow. 
Um, a full homeschool day for us, if I've got my act together, is probably from, uh, say, 8 to noon, and then we take an hour break from for lunch, and then maybe go from 1 to 3. Uh, before lunch, we're doing what I consider the core academics, which would be uh, math, language, arts. Um, and then after lunch is typically history and science, uh, stuff that I feel like if I had to you know, often afternoon lessons kind of slide off the, the table, depending on what kind of day we're doing. Right. But when we when we start back, we don't and we do those four days a week. We always take Friday. We've always taken Friday off um, from the very beginning, because I find and I expect you find the same thing that the the fact that we're tutoring, that it's one on one. We get so we're able to get things done more quickly yes. so that we can do four days a week on a shortened number of hours and still get through, uh, what the kids are getting through, you know, what their friends are getting through at a traditional school. Um, so, but we don't start with that on the first day back. We'll, we'll start. The first thing that we always do is we, we all jump in my, my bed and we have a read aloud, uh, because no, nobody, I don't want to get out. I cannot be homeschool pep squad at eight o'clock for getting everybody downstairs to do math, but I can, because we're going to do the, when we're going to do the next chapter in, and I get to pick those books. Ah, I, I pick that particular homeschool read aloud. So I'm excited <laughs> about the next chapter, whether they are or not. So anyway, so we always start with the read aloud. Um, and so for our first week, maybe we just do the read aloud. We go downstairs and do math and then we're done for the day. Uh, and maybe the, the next week after that, we try to add back in language arts. So now we're going up to lunch something like that. But we very much ramp it up slowly and we both need it. They need that. And I need that because I'm usually still trying to get my act together, uh, both mentally and in terms of curriculum. Right. Well, it's, it's tricky. I mean, you have, you've, you have had at one time four kids at home and four really kids different around places. the table. Yeah. Yeah. Four kids around the table. It was, it was exciting. I'm going to get, I'm going to get, you know, emotional. I miss those days, you know, but anyway, so yeah, so that's, so that's summer, su- summer, summer homeschooling. Do we have any other words of wisdom or exciting things we want to say about summer, summer homeschooling this time around, which I, I cannot say at all, apparently. I think that we are object lessons here in the <laughs> fact that you really can't do it wrong. Whatever works right. for your family is really the best way to do it, period. And, and maybe be flexible, right? Your first plan may not be the plan that you end up with. And that is 100% okay. Uh, and in fact, that's one of the joys of homeschooling, that if you get into something and you're like, hmm, this is not working the way I would expect it to, let's change things. That's, that's something you can and should do. Yes. In fact, I always think that that is the advice that new homeschoolers should get. The thing that people should tell them is just plan less because the more complicated and specific and nuanced your plan, the more likely it is that it's going to be on the floor in two weeks and you're going to be scrambling to figure out something else that works or you're going to happily stumble onto something that works better. Right. Right. Uh, So I think we're ready for our first sponsor spot. Yay. Yay. Well, the podcast with Suzanne and Amy is brought to you by Homeschool Life Magazine, a smart magazine for secular homeschool. Coming up in our July issue, 
resources to get you ready for tricky subjects and happier homeschooling next year. Our much beloved summer reading guide. Yay. Yay. Tips for homeschool family campouts and lots more. If you're not a subscriber, subscribe now and you'll get the summer issue as soon as it's available. Yay. Yay. The July issue is actually really good. Um, I'm starting to, you know, it's starting to come together to gel so that all the content is in and you're seeing uh -huh. stories together. And I always say this, but I really think it might be my favorite issue. <laughs> well, everybody should be sure to read it then. I'm looking, I always look forward to the reading. Anything with books, anything to add to my, I'm not going to tell you how large it is to read stack. Well, speaking of insanely popular things, <laughs> I think Hamilton Segway. is ending up at the Tonys. The Tonys were so awesome. Everybody should go back. If you didn't watch the Tonys, go back and watch, you know, whatever you can find online. It was it was so good. Um, I was actually out of town on Sunday, so I DVR'd it and watched it on Monday. And I am a big fan of the Tonys already because I am totally a Broadway musical nerd. So uh, they do, if you don't know, they do, um, the, it's the awards for all the Broadway shows and they highlight musicals. So they, uh, they will do a performance, typically a full performance from every musical that's been nominated, revival or new musical. So I knew we were going to get some Hamilton. And I was very excited. Uh, and it was just, it was just a great show. It was Sunday night. So unfortunately it was just after all the horrible things that happened in Orlando. And I really thought they had a, a couple of lovely tributes that I thought fit in really well to what was going on. And um, already they had already focused, you know, they already focus on, Diversity, that was one of the themes of the Tonys this year. Uh, in fact, James Corden, who was the host, he opened it up by saying, you know, think of it as the Oscars, but with diversity. <laughs> and that was really true. You've got Hamilton, you've got The Color Purple, a musical that was nominated. You had, you just had a, it was, it was really great. And I thought they, they celebrated that in a really, in a really lovely way. Um, but of course I was excited because it was pretty much all Hamilton all the time. They opened with a, a number, the opening number from Hamilton, but instead of being about Alexander Hamilton, it was about the host of the show, James Corden, <laughs> who I don't know if you've seen him. He does the carpool karaoke. He, yeah, no, he's great. He's great. I knew him from Doctor Who. He was on two Doctor Who episodes a while back. Uh, so yeah, so he was really great. Uh, plus they'd had the Hamilton the full Hamilton number they performed was Battle of Yorktown. And then they closed the show. Oh, Hamilton won. They were nominated for 16 Tonys and 13 categories and they won 11. Wow. So they did, they did pretty well. And then they closed the show in their, uh, in their, they've been joining back and forth between their, their costumes and their evening wear and at the end of the show, while the credits were rolling, they all went on stage in their evening wear and were performing uh, the Schuyler Sisters, which is also about New York. Um, the, you know, the song, uh, how lucky we are, to, you know, to be alive right now in the greatest city in the world, which was just lovely while the credits was rolling. So um, and they also did. I don't know if you're familiar with Ham for Ham. But well, I am familiar because my friend Suzanne regularly mentions it. 
I know. They're little mini performances that Lin-Manuel Miranda sets up outside uh, the Hamilton uh, uh, theater every Which day. Is just another reason to love him. That is such a nice thing to do. Oh, right. It's for because the, they have a lottery. They have a lottery for front row tickets every day. And to, for people waiting in the lottery, they come outside for maybe five minutes and they do a little performance. It's great. You can search YouTube for Ham for Ham, the, the number four, and you can see them. Uh, inspired by that, the Tonys had many performances outside. So like the cast of one musical would run outside really quick outside of the theater where the Tonys were. And they would do not a song from their musical, but another song from another musical that had inspired them or some other kind of, you know, mini, mini performance. And I just thought that was really neat that they recognized how, what a cool idea that was. So go online, uh, see the performances, uh, listen, Lin-Manuel uh, Miranda did, instead of doing his freestyle rap for his acceptance, he wrote, he read a sonnet that he had written, oh. I think both for his wife and, and, you know, to kind of reflect on some of the bad things that have been happening and it's lovely and he's holding back tears and everyone should go watch it. And anyway, so I was blown away by that, but I have to tell you, I have had a, there was, there was a bad, you know, a, a, a less happy experience having to do with Hamilton tangentially that oh. I had earlier wow. in the week. It's not uh, related to Aaron Burr, is it? Because <laughs> I don't want to spoil anything for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it has. I kind of like, I've read, we can talk about this later, but I have read some biographies of Aaron Burr and I kind of really like him. I mean, don't ever lend him money or go along with any of his schemes. But anyway, um, no, I had, I had, hold, hold on. I had to unsubscribe to a podcast. Wow. I know that's, that was, I unsubscribed to a podcast in not anger, but sadness. Um, so there's a podcast that I listened to and I won't, I won't tell you the name, but it, um, that one of the co-hosts at the beginning of the show was like, Oh, I was so excited. I got to go to New York. It was our anniversary. We had tickets for Hamilton, which, you know, nobody gets tickets for Hamilton. They cost, I don't know, $12,000 at this point. Um, so she, and she was talking about, it was great seats and we were so excited. And then she hated it. She hated every minute of it. Oh gosh. And surprising. it is surprising. And she says that she's the theater nerd and she loves Broadway musicals, but apparently she hadn't listened to the music or, or whatever, you know what? And that's, that's actually fine. Like what you like and don't like what you don't like. I'm at a point in my life where I'm kind of like, I don't want to talk anybody. I don't want to try to talk anybody into liking something they don't like. And if you like something I don't like, well, you know what? Life is hard. I'm glad you're getting joy out of that. Um, yeah. It doesn't mean we can't talk about it, but, you know, I, I, you know, like what you like, don't like what you don't like. But so if she'd said, you know what, I, I went and I was so disappointed. It turns out it's just not for me. Um, I, you know, zero, zero issue with that. But, you know, I'm fast forwarding on the podcast, you know, like jumping ahead, like 10 seconds or whatever it is, because I, I, I just don't want to hear people say things about Hamilton. I'm just not in a place where I can, where I can do that because it's brought me, it's brought me so much joy. Um, but I hear her and she's talking about how the choreography was terrible and the acting was amateurish and she's making fun of the wordplay and the rhyme schemes and the music. 
And she's making fun of the audience of, you know, old white people who are so excited to hear all this daring rap music. And I thought about it and I'm like, you know what? If it was just this one, you know, what's going to happen is people respond to the podcast. And so since she spent all this time talking about how terrible it was, people are going to, she's going to have to talk about it again is what I'm saying. Because people will write in and say, hey, I really liked it. And then she's going to talk about it more because I've listened to the podcast. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to hear you talk about it anymore because I think she, she crossed a line for me when with the with a mockery and with making fun of the I mean I'm a I'm a middle-aged white person who is excited to listen to rap um and it just felt like she'd crossed the line into snobbery well yeah I mean because obviously aesthetics are are personal and there's no you, you can't really argue if someone doesn't like something if you're not going to convince someone to like something that she doesn't like that's right. legitimate but to mock other people who like it. Well, I think that's the line. I have a whole, I actually have in my notes, I have rant about snobbery. So I'm, I might have just a small mini rant. But um, I, the older I've gotten, the more I've really come to hate snobbery in all its form. Lit snobbery, you know, music snobs, food snobs, whatever it is. And to me, the defining line is not that you don't like something, but that, you know, A, you've probably never tried it. And B, the, the more important thing is you make fun of the people who like it. Um, to me, that's the crossing line. That's crossing the line into snobbery. And what's what's bad about it, what I find reprehensible is you are setting yourself up as better than somebody else. And they're the other and the inferior other at that. And I just really believe that everything that's bad comes from that kind of setup, you know, othering, you know, taking this group and, and they're the other and they're the stupid other. And I'm the sophisticated one. And I just think it's bad for humanity. But we look at kind of lit snobbery or food snob or whatever kind of, if it's a sin, it's a small sin. And people are actually kind of proud of it. Um, and I know that when I was, when I was a teenager, I was a huge snob. And I was trying to think about why that, you know, music snob and a movie snob and a, and a book snob. I didn't know what I was talking about, but I definitely had opinions about what was bad and what was good. Um, and I've been thinking about that. And I think, you know, I, I hadn't accomplished much then in my life because I was younger. Right. I couldn't define myself as a homeschool mom or a software engineer. So, you know, I think I, like a lot of teenagers, define myself by what I liked and didn't like. And... I wanted people to think that I was discerning and I wanted people to think that I was super intelligent. Um, so I can forgive my, my teenage self for being a snob, but now as an adult, I have, I have zero patience for it. I genuinely think it's bad for humanity. So call me, please call me on it. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think, I think you're right. I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm thinking I really enjoy hearing people snark on things I you know if if someone were snarking in a funny way on Hamilton I would probably enjoy that and people snarking on the Phantom Menace which just lends itself to snark or, okay but that is objectively terrible right of course. <laughs> but but 
I think there's a difference between that and between saying, oh, and you enjoyed it. You got some enjoyment out of it. You are objectively terrible. That's where I think it becomes this really kind of jerky snobbery where you're belittling someone else's feelings about something. Right. I am pro snark. and, And I think you can be snarky. I think that the key is that you know what you're talking about. You know, you've you've tried it. You've given it a try or whatever. And then, like I said, you're believe- and we have to, you know, occasionally, occasionally we talk about things we disagree. I may have a soft spot for the Disney princess movie. <laughs> no Disney ever, please. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and so there's definitely room for some snark there. And there's definitely room for a conversation about, like, you know what? You're not wrong, <laughs> but I still am able to enjoy or the other or whatever it is. Well, I think that even if you have no respect for a particular object, a particular work of art, a particular piece of music, you still should respect the people that surround it, whether they like it or not. I mean, you're completely wrong about Disney princesses. You're crazy (laughs) wrong about it. It's not because you're stupid. <laughs> it's, it's for it's other terrible reasons. About you personally, you just have bad taste in this particular <laughs> area. <laughs> oh, I have bad taste in so many areas. Yeah. You don't even... <laughs> well, join the club. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, so that's my rant, and I've been thinking about it a lot. It genuinely bothered me, and I it it bothered well it bothered me about Hamilton. I think the one thing about it is when something brings you joy whether it's a, a book or a TV, a TV, a TV show or a particular dessert or something, you know, a chocolate something, then you want it to bring joy to everyone. Um, and as I have discovered, as I have put book after book into the hands of my children, what brings me joy or brought me joy is not going to necessarily work for everyone. Um, so that's always a little bit sad. But when you cross the line into snobbery I, I i do not care for that so that's my snobbery rant well rant taken <laughs> no, that's, nothing is more annoying than to have people make fun of you for something that you love yeah it's the worst how about you do you have anything to rant about or to to celebrate can i rave I'm very yes excited. that's perfect that's perfect you have a rave i have a rave i am gonna be an aunt i'm so <gasps> excited Hi. my sister-in-law who is fabulous and sweet and amazing and smart is having a baby um it's due in early december I'm calling the baby it because we don't know yet if it is going to be a boy or a girl. I hope. Are they going to find out? They are going to find out. Did you find out with yours? Oh, I did. Um, I am a control freak. (laughs) And I already knew from very on in my first pregnancy that I had zero control over the situation. So I wanted every scrap of information I could have ahead of time. Fair enough. I, I did not find out, but it was very dramatic with everyone. People were were really upset with me for not finding out. I, I am a little annoyed when people don't find out, but I, but you know, but I forgive them. I wanted it's to. Right. It's their child, I suppose. It's okay. Yes. I, and I would have been happy either way, clearly. Right, right. Um, but, so, so I'm very excited that I'm going to be an aunt, but I'm equally excited that this gives me a legitimate excuse to knit all the baby things. <laughs> knit all the things. So, just knit them all. Knit them all. I'm out of control. You know, you <laughs> You do not knit, right, Suzanne? I do not. I, 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 no. That would take time away from my lying down 
and reading <laughs> or watching something terrible on TV. With my you, can, you can knit while you listen to an audiobook and or watch something terrible. On oh, I cross-stitch. I, oh, see, that's it. I feel like I need that to legitimize my trash TV watching. Yeah, it does help. Yeah. It does help. So no, I'm I'm very excited because my husband's family is actually full of people who knitted and sewed. His um his two late grandmothers made the most beautiful baby things. I still have Jason's little teeny tiny baby sweaters. Oh my sweet. Um so so I like that even though they're not here anymore, you know, to turn out their beautiful right. baby things. I can kind of continue his family's tradition of welcoming new babies with, you know, special hand-knitted things. Well, and they'll keep them forever. You know that they'll have that. Yes. For decades and they'll always know that Aunt Amy was the one that 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 did that for them. So Rachel was saying, um, she's saying, oh, um, so Rachel and I have started a Pinterest board of baby knitting, and it's <laughs> it's, it's reached the point of ridiculousness where uh-huh. she would seriously have to give birth to an entire basketball team <laughs> if there's like any hope of them wearing all, <laughs> all of the knitted things that we think that the baby should have. <laughs> but um, but Rachel was saying, my sister-in-law Rachel was saying that. Um, she would save these knitted things and that she would then send them to my daughter when she had her own. Oh my gosh. And that's so like, beautiful. Talk about this. What I is know. wrong with you? <laughs> I Well, so I feel like since we had a kitten picture last time, I feel like, could you take a picture of some of your, your knitted works? So your works in progress and, oh, and post that them. Great. I, and I actually, I want to solicit our listeners for knitting pattern ideas. Because mm-hmm. while I do have an enormous Pinterest board full of baby knitting projects, I clearly need more. Yeah. Especially I think Rachel wants a baby blanket, which I've never knitted. How can, that seems like, I mean, no, not a knitter over here, but the blanket seems like an easiest thing, right? It's just a rectangle. I think maybe that's why I haven't done it. Because oh, you're a, you're a knit snob. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. No, I don't mean that. I didn't mean that. It was just a joke. But I do, I do like to, um, I like to try new things. And so, so I just haven't. And a blanket is kind of a lot of the same thing over and over again, right? Yeah, but you can go crazy with the colors, right? Yes. That's what I would. That's what I would do. I like. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think you could have a lot of fun with different colors, or one of those fun yarn. Well, you probably already use those yarns that change color along. There's probably a name for those. But yeah. Um, oh yeah, the color change. That's very cool. But I think. But yes, I think you should post pictures. There, post a picture of what you've done on the show notes. So that people can appreciate. Yes. And I will post a link up in the story notes to um, my Ravelry page. Um, Since you don't knit, Suzanne, you probably don't know Ravelry, but it's this sort of crazy online knitting community. It's amazing. It's like a pattern database. And if you go on and you're trying to knit this particular sweater, you can find 200 other people who have knitted it, the specific problems that they ran into wow. and how they solved them and what yarn they used. It's amazing. It's like a control freak's dream site. I think I've seen some stuff from there from misandry, misandry, like, you know, we hate yeah. men kind of knitting projects from, from Ravelry. I may go on a website or two that posts that occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, yes, I'm eager for knitting patterns, your favorite yarns for baby knitting. If you have blanket ideas, I'm looking at this one particular kind of 
textured geometric blanket called You can't just make a rectangle? You can't just you just can't do it, huh? I don't think I can just knit a straight rectangle. I think it has to be a little bit more interesting. But I but I like the idea of this blanket because you knit it in super bulky yarn. So okay. super bulky yarn knits up a ton faster than little teeny tiny sock yarn. Right. I think right. if I had to knit a baby blanket in sock yarn, I would, I don't know, end up living in a basement somewhere. <laughs> I, I think it would just like change my life for the worse. So Babies would, like, are not huge. Downward spiral. It doesn't have to be like a king size baby blanket. It no, no, just small. a cute little baby blanket. <laughs> but but I want ideas. So that's what I so listeners, if you have knitted baby blankets or gotten baby blankets or seen baby blankets, it's fabulous for my wonderful sister in law who is one of the greatest human beings in the world. Leave us a comment or email us at podcast at homeschoollifemag.com because I personally would really appreciate it. That sounds great. Um, and speaking of things that people obsess over, Suzanne, I think it's time for our second sponsor spot. Hey, our sponsor is Homeschool Life Magazine, as you, you may already know. And um, we'd like to give you an exclusive sneak peek at our new online book club for homeschool students called uh, Homeschool Life Reads. And I'm really excited about this. Um, here's how it's going to work. We're go- it's a monthly book club, so we'll pick a book for each month. We'll pick those ahead of time, so there'll be a slate pl- posted. So you know, for example, that November is Pride and Prejudice or whatever it is. Uh, and once a-, a student signs up, they'll have access for that month uh, to the to the online discussion via email and like a dedicated chat forum. And it'll be led by an experienced book club coordinator, for example, me. Um, And the idea is that we'll be able to discuss the book. And then at the end of the month, uh, I had in my notes something like the students would would write a short paper or a book report of some kind. But also, I think we want to be flexible and say we just want some kind of presentation so that you're engaging with the book and thinking about it in in a different way and coming up with something creative. So maybe a song, maybe a short movie, maybe a work of art. And we also want to be able to do it for different grade school, uh, different grade levels. So you'll have maybe homeschool reads upper elementary, homeschool reads middle school, homeschool reads high school. So then the projects would be appropriate for whatever grade level you're in. And the cost will be $25 a month if you want to do it month by month. If you want to sign up for three months or more, that would be $20 a month. And if you wanted to sign up for the whole school year, that would be $15 a month for the, for the nine months for step, from September through May. And then we'll do something special for the Summer Book Club next year. But that'll be coming in September. So stay tuned to the website for more info. Or if you have questions, you can email us at podcast at homeschoollifemag.com. Are you excited, Amy? Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited about this book club. I was wondering if it would be inappropriate to shout yay at the end of your little (laughs) description. I'm excited, too. I think it's going to be a fabulous book club. I mean, A, a wonderful opportunity to read great books with other people who are excited to read great books. And B, a wonderful way to kind of add a little reading to your homeschool that Maybe you don't have to do yourself as the parent. I think sometimes it's nice to have a break from that. 
Well, yeah. And I recognize that even though I read an absurdly large number of books that not everybody's like that. And, you know, I often have friends ask me to suggest books and, and, um, I just, I just, you know, recognize that there's some homeschool families out there where, like you say, either they, don't, they just want to have something where they're not in charge, which is always a relief, <laughs> or something where, you know, maybe they don't feel confident in picking out that kind of thing. So if you did it for the whole school year, for example, for your high schooler, that would be nine, nine novels. Or we're also thinking about doing like a, like a Reed's classic or an a Reed's contemporary and a Reed's, you know, nonfiction. Anyway. You can do so much fun with this. Yeah, um, it's amazing that the end that your high schooler will have read and and engaged with and produced something and commentary on. So I'm really excited about it. I hope you guys are excited about it. And like I said, that'll be in September. Well, since you're going to be leading young minds, molding and shaping them in their attitude toward books, I, I think that we should probably discuss your literary life of crime. Uh, just after you're talking about me molding and shaping. Yeah. yeah so, did you like the connection there? I like, yeah. Yeah. So I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about admitting to my, to my criminal act regarding, uh, Mara, uh, girl of the, wait, 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 daughter of the Nile. I just, I just blanked on the title there for a second by Eloise Jarvis McGraw, who is the author of the book that, that Amy suggested we read this time around Greensleeves. And I, I have two like simultaneous thoughts. One is, oh my gosh, this has been set up and it's going to be so anticlimactic. I should make something up. It should be an Ocean's Eleven type heist of some kind. There should be, you know, Brad Pitt and George Clooney should be involved clearly. Um, and then the other thought that I have at the same time is like, I don't know if I can admit this. <laughs> I've told, I, honest to goodness, nobody, I've told less than five people about this my entire life. Um, it's only people who live in this house with me right now. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I'm really super embarrassed about it. But well, let me tell you. your criminal secrets if you want to, Suzanne. We can all imagine. I know, you're going to imagine something that's so much cooler than, than, than what it is. But I've, you know, I've, I've teased it this much. I feel like I have to come clean to the thousands of podcast listeners out there. Um, please don't turn me in. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about Mara, Mara, daughter of the Nile. Um, it's a, well, I read it in junior high. It's set in ancient Egypt during the reign of Hatshepsut, the female pharaoh. And she is a, a highly educated slave girl. She can read and write and speak Babylonian. And she is, at the very beginning of the book, she is sold to a, a, a person who is working for the queen. to and, and they want Mara to spy on Thutmose, who is the queen's half-brother. And many think he should be the rightful pharaoh. And so he's trying to overthrow the queen, they suspect. So Mara is going to be slipped into his household as the Babylonian interpreter, well, as the interpreter for the Babylonian princess, Inani, who is being set up with Thutmose, who doesn't want to have anything to do with her. Um, and so right, right after that, in a strange twist, she runs into a young nobleman in disguise. She doesn't know he's a nobleman, but he is handsome, um, named Sheftu. And as it turns out, he is working for Thutmose and Mara overhears him and she's going to be in trouble. And she says, no, but wait, I can spy for you in the household um, and communicate with Thutmose as the interpreter for this Babylonian princess. 
So Mara sets herself up in, in, in the queen's household as working for both sides. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So so that's the setup. And, um, and well, I'll tell you the crime first, and then I just reread it. So I'll tell you what I think about it now, having not reread it. I loved this book in junior high. I had, now I want you to remember back to the early, mid 80s. Which I remember vividly. There was no, there was no internet. There was no way to go on Amazon and find an out, or or one of a dozen other sites and find an out of print book that maybe is across the country from you. There was just your local Walden books and whatever local used bookstores you had around and the library. Mara was not in print. And I, and so there was only this library copy that I had that found in the library of Lyndon B. Johnson, junior high, go fighting longhorns <laughs> in Florida. Shout out to all the fellow alum. Um, and it was not in my city library. It was not in any branch of my city library. I went to my used bookstore faithfully. I could not find it. So I checked it out over and over and over and over again. And then the junior high was seventh, eighth, ninth grade. So when I was leaving as a ninth grader, I came to the conclusion that I could not walk away from this book without ever seeing it again. So on the last day of school, I went to the library and I waved to my friends, the librarians who know me and trust me and like me. (laughs) And I took the book off the shelf and I smuggled it out of the library. And. (laughs) Wow. It's a big deal. I betrayed everything I believe in, which is the sanctity of libraries. Besides, I have a thing about not breaking rules. And I I really understand breaking rules is is traumatic. But I think I think that the statute of limitations on your crime is well up. I am so sorry. And I suspect that any middle school librarian who found out that a student had loved a book so much that she had felt compelled to borrow it for an extended lifetime (laughs) would probably be pretty thrilled. I am so sorry, Johnson Junior High Librarians. You were awesome, and I failed you. But um, so then I had this copy, and I and and okay, so I crossed out all the stuff that says it was a library book all over it, and I kind of hid it, you know. And I never read it because the guilt was too much. And then, of course, I kept seeing Mara in bookstores, so every like used bookstores. So every time I saw a copy, I would buy it. So I ended up with like four copies. <laughs> And of course, now I could go online and get it anywhere. You know, it's not a big deal. But um, so I never read it after that. So this is this is the wages of sin, people. You know, I, I did not read it until just and I actually got rid of I wish I hadn't now. But at one point when I had my three other copies, I got rid of it was like the telltale heart. I couldn't have it in the house right. anymore. It went kathump, kathump every time I went by the books, you know, the bookshelf. So um I got rid of it and I had not reread it for 30 years, something like more than that. Um, yeah, more than that. So I read it uh, and I was really nervous to find out if it held up after all of that. And okay, so I did not love the fact that Hatshepsut is the evil queen 
and that the hero of the story goes around talking about how a queen, a woman is not supposed to be Pharaoh of Egypt. I didn't love that. Right. Um, I didn't love the fact that Mara has blue eyes and that she is actually called blue eyes like every paragraph, like once a paragraph, somebody calls her blue eyes. I don't ever call her by her name. They just really highlight the fact that that she's got blue eyes, which I felt was a little bit sneaking in there. Okay, so she's, you know, she's not fully Egyptian or whatever. She Western ideals of attractiveness. Exactly. Yeah. So that was a little... You know, I mean, they, they hint at the fact that she was kidnapped from probably a, a you know, a wealthy family. But anyway, the, so that was that was a little uncomfortable. And then some of the romantic tropes I didn't like, um, which I'm just not a fan of these in, in general around power, where the hero has all the power, but he refrains from using it. Right. And that's romantic. But but that said, I thought the the spy story really held up towards the end of the book. I mean, I knew what was going to happen. But I, was zzz, I was zizzing, you know, I was going fast to the pages like I used to. And I loved Inani. Inani is the Babylonian princess. They talk out the whole book about how the Egyptians all hate and despise her because she she's they call her fat, you know, because she's and, and she doesn't look like an Egyptian. And she likes bright, colorful things instead of wearing white all the time. And um, and she doesn't speak Egyptian, so she's miserable and freaked out and terrified. Um, but she figures out early on that Mara, you know, Mara's her translator, and she figures out early on that, like, for example, she's not hearing the actual conversation that Mara is having with Thutmose or with Sheftu or whoever it is. So she figures out that there's something hinky going on, and she really likes Mara. Mara's her only connect. Mara is kind to her. And she's the only connection to the Egyptian court. So she actually ends up helping Mara at a at a crucial point in the novel. So the only, I wanted more. I wanted more Inani. I would read the Inani book. <laughs> because even though she's terrified and kind of presented as this kind of hopeless, helpless girl, um, um, she she is brave and intelligent and she comes through. So yeah, so I want to read the Anani book, um, but yeah, so that's that's the story. Are, are are you are you disappointed in me? Are you disappointed in my story? Should I may have made something up involving explosives or? I I think your story is the perfect Suzanne crime. <laughs> I it think is the perfect the crime. Speeding crime for you to have committed. I've never even had a speeding ticket. Just <laughs> <laughs> me either. <laughs> so so that is the story of my life and crime. Aw. Well, now I want to read Mara, Daughter of the Nile. I think you should. Don't blame me if you don't like it. I may have some nostalgia. You know, I'm looking at it through nostalgic glasses. But um. that's what I wanted to say about Greensleeves is that I, I read it when I was an adolescent and I fell in love with it. I read it over and over and over again. I didn't actually steal it from the library. Because you're a better human being, clearly, yeah. Uh, Because it did go out of print and only recently came back into print. I was so excited to find it, um, you know, as a Kindle download for $3.99. I was like, oh, my gosh, I love this book. Tell everybody, tell everybody the plot. Give us, Uh, give us a recap. So, um, So Greensleeves is about a girl named Shannon Lightly who's just finished high school and has no idea what to do with herself. She's grown up all over the world with her parents. Her father is a famous journalist who's 
and her stepmother is a famous photographer. Her mother is a famous actress and her stepfather is a famous director. Um, And she came home for her senior year of high school to live with her aunt and uncle in a small town in Oregon. Um, She didn't fit in with her parents and their friends in Europe. She didn't fit in in this little town in Oregon. She doesn't know where she fits in or who she is. And she's kind of freaking out about being at loose ends. Mm -hmm. She has um, a family friend in Oregon who's very nice, who loves her very much, who says, I think you just need to stop thinking about all this for a while. Here, I'm going to give you a job to do. Go do this job and don't worry for the summer. So he sends her to investigate this little community of people who may have unduly influenced a woman's will. Um, And so Shannon gets very excited about it. She decides that she's going to go all in and disguise herself. So she creates this persona, Georgetta Eisenweiler Smith. It's a great name. It is. You got to give her that. And this is set in the 1960s, um, I say, so that you can understand that she gets this really elaborate, shellacked, (laughs) updo kind of thing. Um, She practices speaking with like a Midwestern accent because she's lived all over the world. She's very good at faking accents. And she takes a room at the boarding house where the woman in question lived and a job at the little neighborhood cafe as a waitress. And it's just kind of a really simple story of how it's a summer where by pretending to be someone else, she kind of figures out who she really is. She meets people. She, you know, kind of falls in love with a boy and she makes friends. Um, But there's not, it's not a plot heavy book. Even even the will turns out to be kind of not the point of the story. Right. Right. Which surprised me. Yes. Yes. And because it is, it is, she's very single-mindedly focused on it. And I, I, I've often thought that, it's because she's so focused on this one specific thing that she stops paying attention to herself long right. enough to kind of become herself. Relax. Yeah. So what did you think? Did you, did you like it? It's, it's hard for me because I loved it so much. I know. I know. I would, I enjoyed reading it. I was glad to have read it. Um, you know, there's a butt coming. I, I, Liked some things about it. I liked I liked the whole house of house of kind of unusual characters, and the will setup that was all great. Um, I liked that the story kept surprising me in small ways. I thought I knew what direction it was going to go, and then it did not go in that direction. Um, there were some things I really, really, really didn't like about it. <laughs> well, I, I I think there are some books that you you read at a certain time. And so you have a soft spot for their issues, even when you come back to them. Right. Tell me what you didn't like. It's okay. I can take it. You can take it. All right. I promise I can take it. I don't regret reading it. Just, you know, I'm glad to (laughs) have have read it. I have no regrets. Um, It's a a worthwhile read. and, And I love that it's, even though it's a book that's written in the 60s and takes place in the 60s, it doesn't feel super old fashioned. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Because people are, well, in some ways it did. Well, okay. So let me tell you the three things I had. I wrote down three things. Um, so the, one of the turns I didn't expect was it becomes a romantic triangle story. Yes. And I, 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 I think I have hated in all caps and like underlined three times. I hated one of the points of the triangle. Um, Dave Kolka, who is an artist living in this boarding house. Um, I hated every single thing about him. He uses his physicality as a weapon. Uh, I mean, you know, this this is maybe where it's a little dated, right? Right. Um, 
He blames her for playing with fire and enticing him, even though what she's done, as far as I can tell, is walk around and exist. She has a very special walk. It's not that. It's, it's, (laughs) yeah. And, um, and then also her other boyfriend at one point, who I like, uh, blames her for stirring things up, you know, like for kissing, she kisses him passionately at one point. Right. And then he's like, Ooh, you've stirred up things you shouldn't have stirred. I'm like, come on guys. So, so reading it through a 2016 kind of lens, I, 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 re- I cannot express to you how much I hated well, <laughs> Dave Kolka character. No, no, I think Dave Kolka is terrible. But one thing that I, I actually really like about the book is that she completely and absolutely doesn't choose him. I think in other books, you know, right. women reform the jerky guy it turns out that he has a heart of gold and you know all that physical attraction is love right and I really liked that in this book she just completely flat out rejects that she's like you're not the kind of person that I like or that I would want to be with and yes you know like you're very attractive standing there in the hall with your brooding and your Uh. but you're not for me Right. No, she is. She is smart. It was just I just wanted somebody to punch him in yeah. the face. Well, somebody really, should have punched him really hard. And, so, and I do think I, I take your point on the scene with Sherry where he, he blames her for that. But I, but I think, too, there she rejects that. I mean, she says, you know, right. this this isn't fair. Like, you cannot put this on me. I'm not going to stay here and be forced well, part of it is I really like Sherry. So he you know, was so likable. He was so likable. So it was hard when he started. You know, I'm like, come on, quit acting like you're in a 1960s novel. Yes, dude. Um, okay, so that was the first, and then and then there's one scene. Okay, so spoilers, right? Right. Um, they it ends up that the will the will is contested, and these lovely characters in the boarding house do not get their their bequests. From Which are their, really sort of lovely bequests. They're charming based, bequests. Based on things that these people genuinely would benefit from. And so so after all that happens, and um, it's not Shannon's fault. It's not the heroine's fault, really. Um, she she talks to one of them, the one of the, the old wise guys there. Not wise guy, but wise people. <laughs> And and he says he's very philosophical about it. He thinks it's good that they didn't get their requests. He um, he says that people can't ever help one another. That if you're stuck in a trap of your own, that we're all stuck in traps of our own making, and we have to get out of them on their own. And he, he she literally says, "Does that mean that people can't ever help each other?" And he says, "Yes." I think I hated that even more than I hated Dave Kolka. That is um, very annoying. But I, but do you really think that that is kind of, I mean, do you think that that's his opinion or the opinion yes. of the book? Well, I think the, I think that's the book's opinion. I do think it's the book's opinion because the book never says otherwise. I mean, looking at it, I think that's his opinion. And he was executor of the will and he actually talks the other people into not contesting it. So he's extraordinarily selfish around that. And there's things like a trip to Greece, like a scholarship for she, I'm like, none of these things would have, you know, from his personal selfish perspective, he thinks it would have been a bad thing for me to get his his part of the bequest and that it wouldn't have helped me. And because of that, he generalizes to everybody. And it's just this very, okay, 
I have to take a short, short detour. Um, I didn't go see Batman versus Superman <laughs> that just came out. Right. <laughs> because I can't stand the dark and gritty superhero, but I've read a lot of conversation about it. And one of the things that often comes up in conversation is there seems to be an argument made in the movie, and I can't say that personally because I wasn't there, that you can't help people. That if you help people, it's going to have unintended consequences and it's going to go wrong. And so you're just better off not doing anything, um, which people have called Randian and Randian. I mean, I think that's actually too generous to be called Randian. I mean, but but anyway, that made me think of that. And and I I, I, I really hate that philosophy, that idea that that you're going to do something worse if you try to hate. So, so it's one line, it's one line in the book and it doesn't necessarily really affect things. Although I, I do think, I wish he hadn't been the one to talk the people out of contesting the will. Um, right. Well, I, I, I was bummed that they agreed to not try to make the bequests happen because it was clear that the woman in question was in her right mind. Mrs. Dunningham is her name. Yes. That she was in her right mind, that that's what she really wanted. Her daughter, who's the person contesting the will, is perfectly well off, doesn't need the money. Right. And it would have genuinely helped some of these people. But I but I, I think that the book, the entire book kind of contradicts that statement by him. I think that, that you see over and over again people helping each other and it making a difference. Even simple things like the setup of the book where uncle frosty says like let me help you shannon let me call your dad and tell him right. that you deserve a summer where you don't have to deal with all these big questions well that's a really good point but then i don't understand why this particular person i mean he really was set up as the voice of wisdom well, he, and he kind of gets the last word and i, on but this I think topic. that that's like a piece of where shannon is at the time i mean if if I've read this book so many times. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but Mr. Bruce is, is his name is Mr. Bruce. He doesn't um, he doesn't say much. He's not an important no. figure in the book. He's sort of a shadowy background figure. In the long run, he doesn't have that much impact on Shannon's life. A lot less than the other people that she meets. True. I mean, he gives her the job at the cafe, which is a big a big piece, and he like kind of accepts her for who she is with all her made up job history and life yeah. history um, which maybe does date the book a little bit that you could get a job without a social security <laughs> number but um but I, but I feel like I feel like that's just his opinion and I feel like it's an opinion that the book kind of kind of rejects I think the book says like they didn't make the right decision people don't always like this wasn't the right thing to do they listened mm -hmm. to this guy oh be nice this is what you should do but it, but it wasn't necessarily the right thing well, I hear you. And I can, I can, you know, I think you've got some, some evidence for that, but I, I just really, I, I don't think it needed to be in there. And I, I really did feel like the book was pushing it a little bit. Well, that, um, it, that is a really big piece of kind of philosophy of the time that the book was written. I mean, there's a lot of, you cannot help people. They have to help themselves kind of in 60s, 70s, 80s philosophies. Right. I mean, that's true. Anyway, that's true to a certain extent, but anyway, that, so that, that, I mean, it, honestly, if that piece hadn't have been there, um, I mean, I think that may have tipped the scales for me. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I think that that is, that is an offensive philosophy that I cannot espouse. But the, but so, so, so the, then the last thing, the last thing is I, I, and, and this may be, this may be hard to hear, but I got a little tired of 
Shannon by the end of the book because I felt like I kind of thought, again, the book kept surprising me. I thought part of this journey was that she's going to maybe learn to appreciate what she had a little bit more. I mean, I feel for her at the beginning and I understand she is truly miserable and she has not created that misery. It's talking about creating your own traps. She didn't create that for herself. You know, it's, it's, she was not really at fault for the situation she found herself in and how unhappy she was. But um, when it comes right down to it, she has, it seems that she has plenty of money. She could go to college anywhere. She, the whole world is at her feet. She could travel anywhere. She could go to college anywhere. She, you know, she's talking, her boyfriend is, is trying to scrape together money for another year. It's that kind of thing. And also at one point she talks about um, how she has seven parents and how terrible that is. And I hear that. And I hear that she doesn't have a great relationship with her, her quote, seven parents, but she has so many people. I mean, it's clear that her father loves her. Yes. It's, it's clear that this family friend, I mean, she actually has like extra parents and she has extra parents who, who not, you know, love her and want, will do anything for her. And I don't feel at the end that she ever, um, said she ever came to any, any realization of how fortunate she was. Um, so I, I kind of got tired of her feeling sorry for herself and never, even in comparison with all of these people who are really bad off in, in certain situations, she never seemed to have any awareness of how privileged she was. Right. No, it's a very inwardly, this, I think that this is a fair criticism that Shannon's focus is always kind of on herself, even as she gets to know other people, she doesn't really develop empathy or understanding. Yeah. I, I mean, she cares about, I don't mean she's an uncaring person. I think she does care about people. And there are a lot of instances like where she cuts um, Winola's hair. Right, right. No, she's generous and she likes other people and she does want to help them. But she is very focused on herself. But I, I guess, I was certainly that way at 18. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I kind of kind of identify with that where everything is kind of a wall that bounces back onto you. Well, it's definitely much different. You know, it's definitely much different reading this kind of book as the adult and as the mom. Right. Then, I mean, you know, when I, like I said, if I, if I'd run across it in middle school, I probably, I, I think I would have had, I mean, there's some great, you know, this whole setup. Oh, I will tell you, you know, so because of this book, I went away and reread The Westing Game. I love The Westing Game. So that is definitely a positive outcome. There is never a bad reason to reread oh my God. <laughs> The Westing Game. That is one Game. of the great books. Of and that has literature. got, it's the whole setup, right? You've got the will, the mysterious will, and you've got the, that's not a boarding house, but an apartment house of characters. So, um, so I love that kind of thing. So I, I'm glad, like I said, I'm glad that I read it and um, thank you for recommending it. <laughs> and I, I just think that I may be in the wrong age, you know, to, to really love it. Cause the parts that I'm critical of, um, I wouldn't necessarily have been critical of those same things. Right. Well, I think that that's true of a lot of books. I think that not all books are like this, but there are some books that have a window. Like Jason had never read Catcher in the Rye. I kept saying, oh, you must, you must read yeah. Catcher in the Rye. Everyone should read Catcher in the Rye. And so he read it, you know, when he was in his late 30s. And he was like, I just don't get it. This guy's just annoying. Oh, I'm with Jason on that. That's, it's a terrible, terrible book. <laughs> I, 
a lot of people who read it in this specific right. period when they can really identify with Holden. Right. And they love it and they love right. it for the rest of their lives because they it spoke to them. And you know, that. if you get joy out of that, then I celebrate that. I celebrate the joy you get out of Catcher in the Rye and Green Sleeves and, and, and all the books that, that maybe I shouldn't love anymore. But I still do. Let's love them forever. Let's love them forever. They they helped. Mara was a, had a huge influence on my life. <laughs> and it does sound like there. I was thinking how different Eloise Jarvis McGraw's works are. Like what a broad range of stuff they cover. But there are a lot of similarities, it sounds like. There is. There is. Yeah. The, well, it's a romance. I mean, yeah. Mara is essentially a romance. And that's what Greensleeves turns out to be. And I did not expect that. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, so... So, yeah. So, Green Sleeves. Yeah, we did. Yay. So, so, thank you for reading it. I appreciate it. Um, what are we reading next? We are going to read, and I have not read this book, so maybe we'll both hate it, but I don't think so. It's called Tooth and Claw by Joe Walton, and it is uh, supposed to be Anthony Trollope with, and I don't know if I say that right, Trollope, I guess, um, with dragons. And that doesn't mean that the characters are, are riding dragons or something. It means that the characters actually are dragons. Um, and I actually want to read a, a short section from the author's note to introduction to introduction to introduce you to the book. Um, this novel owes a lot to Anthony Trollope's Framley Parsonage. I grew up reading Victorian novels. People since, from Joan Aiken to John Fowles and Margaret Forster, have done fascinating things with writing new Victorian novels from modern perspectives, putting in the things a Victorian novel leaves out. That gives you something very interesting, but it isn't a Victorian novel. It has to be admitted that a number of the core axioms of the Victorian novel are just wrong. People aren't like that. Women especially aren't like that. This novel is the result of wondering what a world would be like if they were if the axioms of the sentimental Victorian novel were inescapable laws of biology. Ooh. I mean, so that's cool, right? I, I mean, that makes, it, that makes it sound super serious. It's about a bunch of dragons, okay? And they they do dragony things. And it's not as long as a Victorian novel. My, my copy's only about 250 pages. Oh, wow. So, so that's perfect. Yeah. Um, we also have, I think we should probably mention coming up in our reading, Suzanne right. and I are tackling Gore Vidal's Burr um, to go along with our Hamilton fever. That's right. That's right. I'm really excited about it. I've never read anything by Gore Vidal. Amy has, so she's going to hold my hand through this process. Um, <laughs> I need a I'm, little hand holding. And I'm, I'm excited because as, as I mentioned before, um, the more I read history, I, I kind of coming to see Burr as this kind of charming rogue. Um, okay, yeah, he totally spent the years after uh, the duel committing all kinds of treason. Like if there was treason to be committed, he committed it. And he did kind of um, bankrupt his friends who loaned him money. And he did kind of have no principles except for getting ahead kind of principles. But he's still so much better than Jefferson, who is so terrible. And I have a list of all the ways that Jefferson is terrible. Um, but anyway, Burr, I, I see him now as kind of this this charming. Like you don't you want him at his you want him at your party. You don't necessarily want to do anything he suggests. Right. But you you know so I'm 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 cautiously optimistic. 
I hope it's going to be great. Um, and you should read it along with us, listeners, if you are interested. Um, I think it's one of those books that is great to read with other people who are reading it because that you have someone to talk to about all the crazy things that you discover. Exactly. Exactly. So, so we've got Burr by Gore Vidal and Tooth and Claw by Joe Walton. And those are our books for the next time. Yes. And we'll link those up in the show notes too. Um, uh, I think that that is a wrap, but I, I want so. to say that starting with this episode, you can find uh, episodes of the podcast with Amy and Suzanne on iTunes. So listen to us there if you like what you hear. It's great if you can leave us a comment and a rate us. That's great. Apparently great. So <laughs> we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> we do it. Um, We're wrapping up episode two of the podcast with Suzanne and Amy, brought to you by Homeschool Life magazine. We'll be back on July 4th to talk about how on earth we'll ever teach calculus and other annoying questions homeschoolers always seem to get asked. If you have a favorite clueless homeschooling question or anything else you'd like to tell us about, email us at podcast at homeschoollifemag.com or leave us a comment on the Homeschool Life podcast page. We'd love to hear from you. Really, we love it. Thanks for listening. Bye.